Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this edition of E-Radio. This is part two of the previous conversation I was having with the anarcho-capitalist Michael Shanklin. Um, do you prefer the term anarcho-capitalist or voluntarist? Is there a difference? Could you explain that to the audience? Yeah, well, to me, I don't really see as much of a difference. Some anarcho-capitalists don't really claim the moniker voluntarist. I find a praxeological route for freedom. This is my, my personal belief is, you know, this argumentation ethics side, which we'll get into next week. But, uh, you know, it's kind of this praxeological side, which I, I really do subscribe to that, uh, you know, we are individuals and that we do have these certain, I don't know if you want to call them rights, but you have the right uh, to, to not be grasped upon in the least. And so uh, I think that that would be some place where some anarcho-capitalists might, especially the subjectivist anarcho-capitalists, might not hold them to that objectified view, but I, I, uh, I certainly do. But really, in essence, the anarcho-capitalist still argues uh, from the voluntarist type of, of uh, a free society in that aspect where you know, individuals can uh, choose their own lives through, through owning themselves and, and whatever property they can justly acquire. So uh, that's really – I don't see a problem. You can call – me either. Um, really, I think there's about a million labels you could probably label me <laughs> that are uh, that are accurate, and probably a, a, another triple that that are not accurate. But you know, uh, I, I really don't care about any of the labels. Really, I just that's why you'll notice recently I've just been pushing a lot of just in my what I view is just freedom. Now, some people, you know, obviously have a different view of freedom, but I believe it's from the non-aggression principle. So. Okay, no, that's all fair. I just, you know, and I know what you mean about the labels thing. Um, obviously, uh, more or less, uh, I think, especially over time. Like I remember, for example, before Charlie Veach, for example, knew that he was an anarcho-primitivist. I guess he was not aware of the fact that there was a anarchist school that pretty much personified his own feelings. Um, and when I initially used the term, he like took mild offense, like he thought I meant there was something wrong with being primitive. I'm like, actually, no, it's like probably one of my favorite of the anarchist schools. You know, it was like, there's nothing wrong with that at all. <laughs> um, ironically, uh, in Venus Project philosophy, as strange as this it is, especially when it comes to you know values and such, we have a quite a bit in common with that particular school. It's just we emphasize technology and they don't. Um, but that being said, uh, I also can see where there's an issue with labels, and I'm, and I'm confident that that was something that we will probably end up talking about during the next segment, or you know, provided we get everything out of the way that we want out of the way in this one, um, you know, just to discuss. Because one of the things, like I said, for example, uh, there's another guy who's, um, you know, he was recently, I think, in your comment section, and he's talked to me in the past, and he's been on uh, episodes of the stuff that we do with storm clouds gathering and the round tables and such. And, you know, I, I pointed out to him and he tended to agree is that it's, it's, it's difficult to, to pin down what some of these groups believe. Cause obviously there's going to be, you know, individual differences. When I talk about, you know, like we were discussing earlier, socialists or communists, I don't think of Joseph Stalin because I think that guy was a fascist, but there are some people who would think he was a communist. I had friends that I met at the Occupy movement who were very peaceful people, very freedom-loving people, you know, who identified themselves as, as anarcho-socialists. Um, so, well, you know, I guess, no, I ahead. completely agree with you. I, I know where you're going with this. You know, as far as the word, uh, you know, like communism, 
I guess when I when I really look at the word communism, I just the first thing that pops in my head is communal property. So that there's like a, a commune. That's really the first thing that pops in my my head. Uh, you know, I guess when people think of capitalism, the first thing that they think of is, is probably money. Uh, so, but really, once you start digging into both philosophies, there's things that are obviously uh, deeper. Like you know, with with uh, Capitalism, it usually, to at least what I believe is true, laissez-faire capitalism requires the non-aggression principle. And a, and a communist would argue from different tenets. Now, I, I have not been able to necessarily pinpoint any one benchmark other than a, a claim to uh, try to be as equal as possible, but even economically. Um, whereas, I, you know, I, I don't think that's really feasible on, on a larger level. I just think that... Uh, we can get closer, and I think that a market economy that's open, that basically when trade's available uh, and people aren't stopped from doing things, that they're going to obviously try to seek their own best interest and uh, build up the economy that way. And uh, see, this 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 kind of leaves us off. What do you want to jump into where we're at? Do you have well, yeah, I think we should probably. Go ahead, go ahead. I just I was kind of going back and forth a little bit with you on the on the issue of labels because I agree with that, and <laughs> I think that it would help if uh, we could use them. I guess would be the just to, to finish that part of this conversation and we'll get back to where we were, um, is that if such things could be considered a, a tool for expressing oneself and not a straitjacket, you know, like it doesn't need to be, well, you know, if you follow this, 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 and this, you know, then obviously you do that. I think actually that politics in particular, um, and th- ironically, this is also stuff that, you know, one of my anarcho-socialist friends was talking about was that, you know, they make us believe, well, if you believe in this and this and this, then you must also therefore believe in this, this and this, even if you don't. You know, like, for example, I've heard people call me a liberal, but I'm a pro-gun rights advocate. And I've been told, oh, well, if I'm pro-gun rights, then I must also therefore be against socialized medicine or, you know, like they make all these other assumptions. I'm like, what the hell does guns have to do with socialized medicine? And they're like, well, that's just what liberals do. And I'm like, so basically you're letting some other group of people dictate to you that if you are pro-gun rights, but you, that, that must therefore also be, you know, anti-abortion or, you, you know what I'm talking about? How these, like, these social paradigms yeah. they create, they expect oh, that yeah. therefore you must be this, this, and this. You run into it all the time, like, you know, I'm and I'm sure you've run, to, run into it as well, obviously, because, you know, you advocate a stateless approach to capitalism, um, you know, that people are going to make some assumptions. and And I think that some of that I can understand, but I, I've noticed that, you know, in many cases, there are people who, it's like they've got their pre-programmed counters for anything that's not their philosophy, and they spit those out really fast. Like, you know, it's almost like you can script them. This is actually something I used to talk to friends of mine about, because they would ask, like, you know, if, for example, a free market libertarian came into the TeamSpeak group on you know, the zeitgeist movement, they would usually call me in to talk to the guy because I understood them and I could generally predict what they were going to say next. <laughs> because I was like, I used to be one of you, man. I, I get where you're coming from. Oh, yeah. You know, um, but well, anyway. I definitely agree with you. I ahead. definitely agree with you because, uh, you know, obviously, you know, just growing up in my own lifetime and having my own personal experiences with friends and family, I've experienced the same thing where there's people who, when they, when they claim usually to, to democracy, um, 
or when they think of a person who's a Democrat or something like that or a person who's a Republican, they automatically assume you know, the Republican must be uh, anti-abortion, pro-war, pro uh, or anti-tax, and and that the the person on the left. You know, I mean, obviously there are there are these characteristics of maybe the party platforms. But I know that uh, even inside of these party platforms that people have differences of opinions, just imagine outside of them, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, it's obvious, you know, people like like Zeitgeist and the Venus Project and anarcho-capitalism, we're, we're not often, we're never talked about in, in, you know, most public or private schools, either one. Sure. And so, and so in, in most cases, people just don't have that perspective. They just kind of see what the, the, the politicians are yelling out to them every few years, you know, and that's, and that's, that's really the only answer I can give other than the education system just doesn't really educate them on any of this stuff. Or it'd be nice if we had a month on, on, on all kinds of different ideologies, right? But usually they don't do that, not even, not even for adults in many cases. You have to go to ex extremely advanced classes for that type of stuff. And I can understand. I mean, you're trying to specialize in what you want to do. But uh, obviously there's a lot of people who just don't understand or haven't heard any of the stuff we're, we're going to be talking about for the next, you know, last week or the next three weeks. So, well, for sure. Uh, and that's, I think, I, I mean, I remember said something about that on Facebook. And that's another thing, ironically, once again, an anarcho-socialist pointed out to me is that that's really to the best interests of the, the top tier people, the ones that run everything, that people that we are spending so much time fighting each other, you know, um, because at that point, you know, we're, we, and that's like, I, I mean, I'll give you an example. And I, I talked to Stefan Molyneux about this and he agreed. Like I used to be on this Facebook group for anarchists and I finally just left it. it not because I didn't find any value in it ever, but because it was always the anarcho-communists versus the anarcho-capitalists versus the anarcho-primitive. And all they did was just attack each other, like about which one of them was better. And that's, you know, and that was something I've said frequently is that, you know, uh, in fact, even early on in my radio days, I said, it's funny that we spent so much time fighting about this stuff because like um, the Ron Paul people were very purist, for example. You couldn't really talk about other people. Like they didn't want to hear about Mike Gravel. They didn't want to hear about Dennis Kucinich or you know, perhaps anybody that might be considered left-leaning. And I said, you know, I think that the the elite, if they do in fact have an agenda, are going to be the ones laughing at all of us when we're all in the same FEMA camps, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and you're going to be thinking, man, I'm so glad I invested so much energy in tearing down that Mike Gravel guy and, you know, and instead of working with, you know, somebody who I may not agree with on everything, but, you know, I did agree with on, you know, several, you know, anti-corruption of the state, you know, issues, you know, and I think that... um it certainly suits their agenda to see us all fighting each other. Uh, you see it also even within the, you know, the still statist but you know, well-meaning groups like the Libertarian Party, the Constitution Party, and the Green Party are very, very nasty to each other most of the time. They're starting to work together, but you know, it definitely is to the benefit of the people that like things the way they are that all of us people who recognize that there could be a life without the state spend so much time you know, jumping down each other's throats. So I guess my, my viewpoint at this at this point in my life is just to try to work with as many people as possible who in as many as many ven venues as possible. So I don't want to make anybody upset. And I mean, you know, there's times I was a little bit more militant back in in some past days, and I'll still get 
passionate about things, right? Obviously, uh, this means a lot to me. I mean, we're talking about life, death, and poverty, and everything else like that. I mean, this is really serious stuff, and I take it with that uh, grain of seriousness. But I try to keep as many people as close to me as possible, and just and just realize that as long as I can continue to try to make my points and what I'm thinking in the world, and other people can either debunk them or try to prove them right, uh, that open discussion will continue to advance society and. and as long as I can just do it peacefully with others, you know, that's that's my two cents. <laughs> sure. All right. Well, that said, I think that's a good place to segue off of that side conversation. <laughs> um, um, go ahead and I guess uh, resume your questions and let's uh, see if we can continue to, you know, bring about, as I said before, clarity. You don't have to agree with my answers, but <laughs> I at least want people to understand our perspective. Yeah, awesome. So... Well, you know, obviously, if you guys watched the last week, we had just ended up uh, talking about the economic calculation issue, and we'd, we were kind of hurrying through it. And I, I, we do it's, – it's a pretty big issue, really, in my book, because it, when, I, when I think of uh, – let me kind of – for people who don't know what I was talking about last week, let me just summarize real quick in about 30 seconds. The economic calculation problem basically states that – when we have a valuation like prices and people talk about money and stuff like this, the reason we even have prices in the first place is so that we can see how everybody else in the economy, at least on kind of an equilibrium, not that you'll ever reach a perfect equilibrium, but that you'll have some kind of an idea of where a, 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 of how valuable a good is and maybe even how, how scarce it might be to somebody else. And that because of, of these subjective preferences that people hold, we don't we don't really we can't you know read other people's minds so and 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 in my opinion filling out surveys and i think history's kind of taught us this that that filling out surveys um yeah, it doesn't really it hasn't at least worked out as well as just uh, people trading for gold or silver or even in some cases frns unfortunately not that i like the monopolization of the currency but uh, you know what i'm talking about so so money itself uh, and not that I think you can get rid of money, but because once you get rid of money, I think something else will just pop up in its place. But the thing is, how do we get these subjective preferences uh, that we can't really quantify into a value? How can we get those into a, some kind of objective information to where people can kind of have a benchmark or a feedback system that's somewhat accurate? And the, the the really issue that stems off of this, when when people talk about having like uh, you know something else uh, in control of the resources and not you personally controlling all the resources around you per se, but having somebody else or even a computer do it. Uh, in any case, they can't take your praxeological preferences and really know how you, what you want at every minute of your life. Now you you could obviously say someday they could put something in your head. If you, if you want, right? I mean, this is all voluntary, obviously. And they could put something in your head that might be able to do some calculations for you, right? Or or maybe they'll even have, like you were saying, when we were trying to summarize it real quick last night to close up the, the other night to close up the radio show, that basically uh, the, the system would, would look at what you're purchasing in almost real time and try to update accordingly, right? Mm-hmm. But the, the question is, how do you, without without the pricing system, to really give you uh, an overall value of what the resource is worth overall. So in other words, we know that if there's 10 tons of coal and people are willing to, uh, to pay, uh, I don't know, a dollar per pound, this is all hypothetical obviously, 
So that's two thousand times two thousand. We're talking forty thousand dollars in you know, thirty forty thousand dollars in coal. Yeah, you know, this is just a horrible example. Imagine we're on a really small the moon or something, right? <laughs> and so uh, we we have forty thousand dollars in coal. And that's kind of what the market is telling us. Hey, we 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 would like to have more coal, and if it goes up in value, it means that more people are are demanding it, and maybe we should focus attention. The entrepreneurs take their capital, and this is all obviously risky because nobody knows the future because we don't have perfect information and we can't, once again, read other people's minds. Some entrepreneurs might say, you know what, there's an increase of excess profits in this industry, uh, and because of that, those excess profits will only be short-term and they'll be pulled back down you know, down the road as long as, as long as people can compete openly and freely, right, so that there's no restrictions to it. But with, with entrepreneurs there to, to even – read off these, these objective, this objective information through the pricing signals, how do we get that subjective information uh, from people's not only minds but also through their human action that usually they might not even think about or something that's subconscious to them or maybe they even do stuff that's what I would consider cognitive dissonance to their, to their own belief structures. So in other words, somebody might say, well, I, I hate money, but they go and use money every day. Uh, when technically they could just live on their own house and not use money and, and build solar panels and the rest of that. Not that the government's not going to try and tax them, but you know what I'm getting at. How, how do we get this this subjective information over to uh, this objective uh, uh, information so that we can actually quantify the amount of resources and scarcity that's out there? Because, I mean, no matter what, we, even if we do have some 3D printers, even in uh, 10,000 years where they're totally kicking ass, right? They're not going to be able to just I, – well, I, I can't picture this yet, but they won't be able to perfectly replicate or duplicate you know, diamonds or gold. Maybe they can down the road, but at least right now they, they can't, right? So the, the issue with me is how do we know where to send those diamonds, uh, where people want them the most, whether they're valued the most, or whatever use is the best for them? How, how, do, we, how do we have this without having really this, this subjective information relayed – over into an objective format? Well, um, I'm actually very familiar with answering this question, and uh, Brandy Hume uh, from TVP Challenge uh, also had to go through all of this with Jacob Spinney. Um, I'm sure this isn't the first time you've heard the question, right? <laughs> no, for sure, and I have no problem with going over the economic calculation problem more if you feel we need to. Um, I had more information to give. I didn't expect us only to get to that in 15 minutes. I actually expected you to right. ask me that one first. Um, <laughs> but uh, it basically, I, would, I guess for the sake of the audience, um, which is another reason why I let you go through all of that is so that the audience who ha you know, has more background on it, because I've, I've heard all of that, and very familiar with it from when I was saying the same things when I was a free market libertarian. Um, the, the first thing, just to kind of go over where we were at, uh, there's the issue, obviously, when you talk about subjective values. Um, Mises' comments in regards to a static state economy, uh, regards to the idea that, you know, and as I said earlier, a lot of the quote-unquote desires that we have that are difficult to quantify um, come, at least in my view, from artificial sources. And the first priority is getting everybody fed, getting everybody clothed, getting everybody shelter, um, you know, the basic necessities. And after you've started there, um, things like 3D printers are, you know, as we said earlier, are certainly coming into fruition. But there's also really nothing to stop people from building things for themselves, you know, 
as necessary. You know, if there's something that you're not getting through the distribution system, you know, then you can take those resources and make use of them yourself. Um, the 3D printing technology is something that, you know, actually was starting to come into, you know, the conversation only recently. Uh, but before that, even if it just comes down to people, you know, building things that they want that are not being offered, maybe, you know, like, for example, people always ask about drugs, like, you know, can I have my marijuana? You know, like, well, if you want to grow marijuana, nobody's going to stop you. But, you know, we have priorities within our system just to make sure everybody's fed. You know, so obviously we're not going to get into the mass production of heroin. <laughs> you know, if you want to make your own, you know, then go for it, you know, because there's no law to stop you from producing things yourself. Um, as a result, and particularly since you're empowering people to be able to have access to resources and the means of production as necessary, um, then you won't really have a problem. Um, so I think that it becomes far easier to collect all that information also, as we said, you know, real time. You know, filling out surveys is, a, is an assessment that was made back before the information age. Um, and while surveys are still referred to, that sort of information can be gathered immediately. It wouldn't be like, you know, Soviets walking around gathering forms that people have filled out and then tabulating all that information by hand. You know, we already essentially establish real-time information on product distribution as we speak. Companies like Amazon.com, um, you know, for example, you know, you can surf through their web you know, pick out what you want, and then the people on the other side respond, and they ship you your stuff. That's actually very similar to the model that Jacques describes for the resource-based economy. You know, if you don't want to go to a distribution center, it's the same concept. We can respond to that information in real time. Mega corporations, uh, particularly companies, huge companies like Walmart that have stores all over the world, are already doing that using technology that exists. The major difference is, is that um, the profit motive isn't involved anymore, and you don't have people that are asking for things that are only going to be important to them for five minutes because they're a novelty, you know, or a fashion or something like that. You know, you, you look at it nowadays because the the fashion industry in particular and the novel and you know, like just the novelty industries, you know, if you people still to this day, like you know, when they finally get around to snapping out of the the spell that they've been put in. You know, make fun of the clothes that they used to wear, make fun of the stuff that used to be important to them, because at that point, they're thinking with their own heads, and the, you know, the constant barrage of you need this thing to, you know, to be considered a, a viable human being is no longer present, and that's when people snap out of it and go, why the hell did I go crazy for those parachute pants in, in the 80s? I don't get it. You know, like, um, you, you see the same thing also, like, uh, for example... In my own children, and I've mentioned this in many V radio episodes, I don't let them watch advertising, and I've seen firsthand that they are way less material, uh, materialistic than any children that I know. Um, they are content with whatever they get generally. They still want stuff, and when I take them to the store, they may ask for it, but there's none of this insane, crazy nagging that you see from you know children that are constantly being barraged by brainwashing on the TV. Um, and I've got, I have to say, you know, both Stefan Molyneux and the fellow whose name is going to escape me, um, who I talked to from Free Talk Live, also agreed. Um, well, the guy from Free Talk Live in particular just spat it straight out that, you know, that um, advertising was brainwashing. Um, so uh, to coalesce essentially my point, um, 
it, responding specifically to the subjective value issue about the fact that you know you can't necessarily quantify what people want from moment to the next. I don't necessarily agree that that is true on its face. I think that um, companies are already doing that pretty well, um, and they're also manufacturing that same desire through I got a, various I got a, um, things that won't exist anymore. I got a quick question to you. Sure. What What is the difference between me talking to somebody and you talking to somebody, or one of us talking to somebody, and us putting information on a billboard? Uh, I'm, I'm not really sure I understand the premise of the question. You, you were saying that advertising is brainwashing, but I guess, I, in my opinion, that's a kind of a subjective value. Like, you could say that about any form of communication. You see what I'm saying? Any, anything can be considered propaganda or, or brainwashing. You see, you see where I'm getting at? So I, somebody else could think we're brainwashing people right now. You see what I'm saying? They could just label us that. And maybe you know, from a subjective viewpoint, in their heart, they might feel they're correct. But to us, we know we think we're just speaking the truth, right? Uh, so well, it, okay, now that I understand the premise, let me go ahead and answer you. Um, there is a huge quantity of information that goes into studying uh, how to be good at advertising. There's a reason why people hire advertising firms. There's a reason why people who work in advertising firms have to go to school to be qualified to be good at it. Um, I've worked in advertising myself, and there's all kinds of tricks that they go through. They go through colors, they go through sounds, they go through you know different ways to present things. What is what do the models look like? Meaning more specifically, the people that they're using, you know, um, in these billboards and these pictures. There's a lot to it, and it's generally um, very. It's very engineered. It's not by any means the same as say you and I talking about. So, hey, I got this Ford back home. You might want to take a look at it and buy it. It's not the same thing as creating a um, commercial uh, that uses music that's known to get the brain in a certain you know, pattern and, you know, and thinking, uh, basically, you know, pathway. Um, it's not the same as uh, putting attractive women next to this car that this guy's getting out of to, you know, to try to appeal to that guy's, you know, mating instincts or whatever. There's all kinds of psychology that goes into advertising that is not something that I mean. Although salesmen do get good at it, I might add, because you know there are also also people who are good at sales and people who are not. But there's definitely something to be said about it because you can. There are people who are good at selling and there are people who are not. And they wouldn't be paying advertising companies if there wasn't something to it. No, I understand that they're trying to, you know, get the most people to. They'll they'll try and say whatever they can in whatever legal realm they are. They'll they'll say whatever they can to try and get people in there, right? But I mean, I I guess like, what what makes it brainwashing? You see you see what I'm saying? Like, what 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 parts of it make it brainwashing? Well, I'll give you an excellent example. Um, the cigarette industry hired Edward Bernays, who was Sigmund Freud's nephew and an expert on the issue of public relations, uh, specifically to figure out ways to market their product to women. Because at the time, uh, within the society in question, uh, women did not smoke. And in fact, uh, they had it 
um, you know, the society at large basically thought it was gauche or dirty for women to smoke. So they hire a psychologist um, and a sociologist, essentially both of those were still kind of being pioneered at the time, to evaluate why, they, why, why their product wasn't being bought. And then also to go further than that and to figure out ways to socially engineer the situation to get women not only wanting to smoke, but to believe that smoking was literally a personification and an expression of their freedom and independence from male dominance. And it worked. And it's not something that, you know, particularly, you know, like moving on later into the future, even when uh, it was clear that there was dangerous you know, side effects to this product, they were able to stay in the minds of people and get people to associate their product um, with, you know, whether it was masculinity or independence or being a rebel or whatever. It was literally to manipulate people into believing that this product was essential to their identity. And, you know, there are people who uh, got smoking specifically because they see, you know, the tough character, you know, in the in the commercial, like the Marlboro Man is the perfect example, you know, and they want to be like that. They want to personify it. So now they're buying cigarettes, you know. Um, th that's definitely a targeted psychological attack on someone to give them an artificial desire for your product. It's not, hey, I got this product. It's pretty good. You should try it. It's, no, you need this product, and if you don't have this product, then you're less of a person who does. You're less of a person than someone who does. Okay. Uh, well, I, I guess, I, you know, I usually try and see companies trying to build up other people, not say that they're, they're going to be less. If I mean, maybe they obviously we're going to be less if whatever we don't have, you know, uh, something of, we're going to be less without it just from an economical or intangible perspective. But I guess to me, like, what makes it so that we're not brainwashing people and saying, well, if you don't do anarcho-capitalism or zeitgeistism, you see what I'm saying? Like, what makes it so that we're not brainwashing people? Well, Fresco, for example, is something we talked about a little bit earlier when people asked him about, well, what do we do if somebody tries to, you know, become a fascist and take over a resource-based economy? And he pointed out that critical and analytical thinking is really the best guard against any kind of manipulation. Um, it should be part of your basic education, for example, to know about these things. Um, it's the reason why people in the zeitgeist movement, for example, we circulate stuff that's not only just zeitgeist oriented. Like I give a lot of people the link to the film Cywar, and I strongly advise your listeners to check it out as well, and I think you would enjoy it. It's not about economic systems. It's mostly about um, just about the power of propaganda and advertising. Um, the Century of Self uh, actually has an interview with that Edward Bernays guy, and he was very old at that time, um, talking about what the, uh, the elite asked him to do to engineer society towards consumerism. Um, if you know and understand these things, and if you're teaching people specifically to inoculate themselves or protect themselves from it, then at that point, you know, you're doing a service to mankind as a whole. It shouldn't, and nobody, and that it comes back also to those uh, understanding and spreading knowledge of the logical fallacies, um, you know, particularly uh, appeal to fear, appeal to mockery, 
um, you know, the various ways that people are manipulated in a conversation to not think rationally any further. Um, spreading that kind of information is how you protect people. And I know the Zeitgeist Movement spreads that information. I don't know. Um, outside of that, you and I, you know, for example, you don't engage in a bunch of fallacies, but, you know, there are other people I've found, everybody who argues on the Internet seems to be caught in this massive stream of garbage and it makes it very difficult for anybody to have rational conversations in public. And that's something that, you know, uh, at least the Zeitgeist Movement, I know, has an emphasis on critical and analytical thinking. And so does Fresco and his Venus Project stuff. And in fact, that's where it originated, really, when you think about it, was Fresco pointing out that you've got to have critical and analytical thinking if you're really going to be free. And you can be as physically free as you want to be if you don't understand how to protect yourself from that manipulation you'll never actually know if you're free or not. All right, well, my, my, we'll, we'll move on from the advertising thing, good stuff. I want to ask about, because uh, the last time I, we were on, I asked about resources and which ones they would have. I, I didn't ask you which ones the resource-based economy would not need. Is there anything that the resource-based economy says that we, we won't need to control that as a, a resource? Because every, you said everything except for uh, like people are resources, right? More or less. Um, as far as controlling it, it more has to do with monitoring it um, because there really isn't, at least in, once again, as I said to you earlier, you're talking about phases. You know, we're talking about early people trying to achieve an RBE or we're talking about a fully realized RBE. Um, but uh, basically... Um, when it comes down to it, it's more about making all of mankind conscious of the amount of resources that are present, that are left, um, looking into any shortages that are there, and if there's resources that are needed for life-threatening issues, then obviously, then you know, we move towards getting those resources to you know to be utilized for that purpose. If you have resources that are not really required for those things, then it kind of comes back to well, then, yeah, obviously, those are not going to be very high of a priority. Um, but even then, you know, it's, it's not just really about, you know, grabbing, say, all the resources on the planet and then keeping them under a strict rationing in so much as it is saying that we as a species need to evolve beyond the idea that there's resources here that belong to some people and not to others and move instead on, hey, we're all in this together, you know, uh, now we need to figure out how we're going to get through this and move forward and make sure that everybody has the best quality life possible. Okay. Um, and that's a voluntary association. Right. I understand it's voluntary. My thing is, when I look at the world, I try to think not of how... I mean, I'd love to change human, you know, and the whole thought conscious of people and their level of ethicalness or whatever you want to put that at, their, their morality. I'd love, to, I'd love to have everybody change overnight, right? Um, and, and, and in some cases, maybe let's say we, we chop down too many trees in, in a few years. And, uh, yeah, I'd like to have these forests. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not anti-environment, right? Mm -hmm. my, my, my thing is, it, it seems like there's a double narrative that I think a lot of uh, my friend, my volunteer's friends, seem to, to catch on that they try to, to go on Zeitgeist and ask me about. And it's that there's a, a, a push for you know, making stuff with the best quality materials, 
but they don't also focus on conservation. But don't those two go together or go against each other? So in other words, uh, how can you conserve when you're trying to make the best table and you have to use some diamonds? You see what I'm saying? This, I think, comes back. It's, it's, it's just such a big umbrella because it comes back to the economic calculation problem, too, of saying, well, how do we know how many people value the iron inside of the desk, because not everybody's going to want to go research how to make uh, a, a microwave, right? Or how to go, the best way to make, um, I don't know, even a house or a car or whatever flying machine we have at the time. So they're not going to know that graphite isn't as strong as some other kind of boron steel, right? Which is like four times stronger than the other steel. It's the new safety thing that came out with all the new cars. So if we don't have these factors of production valued, how do and people aren't going to obviously be able to research every single thing out there, how will the how will the, even the computer? There's no way for the computer to even know what is valued at what. Even if people are voting, they're not really knowing what's the most efficient means of steel. You see what I'm getting at? The efficient means of steel is a phenomenon that you can test, but. I think that the, the best way for me to address your problem would be to point out that if there is a resource that becomes scarce, then rather than trying to continue to use that resource in the name of profit, which is what typically happens now, you research ways to no longer need that, to find alternatives. And um, you know that was the example I gave you last show about how Fresco pointed out that when the Germans were embargoed and were not allowed to have any rubber. They developed synthetic rubber. Um, and that's how you get around issues like that as they come up. If you need to produce an item and you think, for example, that you know, like you're using iron, like let's just say iron's good for tables for some reason. I don't know if it is or not, but just for the sake of discussion. Um, you know, and we seem to be using too much or we're running into an... Um, running into a shortage of that particular material, then we try to, you know, we, we synthetically, you know, seek to reproduce that material or find an alternative. Just, you know, move on from there. Well, I mean, but my, my thing is, how will you even know that the, that the coal, or, or maybe there's something other that's cleaner, we'll, we'll call it material 2.0 or something like that, so material 2.0, how will we, even the computer system know if the people don't know what is valued and like if they don't know how much material 2.0 is needed or that they even want it. And so we, nobody can tell the computer that. Uh, how, this, I guess it, it comes to, my, to mind that there's going to be a lot of uh, like stunted innovation. So not many people are going to be able to just go out here and, and just, it just I, I'm trying to get the bigger picture here, man. <laughs> because fine. to me, it just, to me, it sounds like you're going to have an issue with, with really understanding what is considered more scarce at any certain time and point in history, especially since you're not going to have any entrepreneurs out here. So like today you have maybe like you know, 10,000 people really at the top who are saying, well, we, I need to push steel over this much or we don't need to, to drill in this in this drill right now because uh, we only had sold this many cars uh, or this many people bought steel from us because there's millions of different people buying steel from them, you know, every year, different companies and stuff like this, uh, different industries. So they all need steel, but we, we have at least a valuation, once again, because 
the, the pricing system showed a trade in between people, and that trade, there'd be no exchanges in, in this society, in, in, in a resource-based economy. So how would you value any of the, the, the components like Material 2.0? You know, obviously, survey is not going to work because the people won't even know Material 2.0 is good, or maybe some of them will know, but they won't know how much of it is needed to go into what. It 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 just it just seems to me that we're going to be relying on people competing all the time with different ideas inside of the computer system. You see what I'm saying? Like, you're telling me that people can go up to the computer system and try to reprogram it or give it a different a different algorithm but that is not like a form of competition in itself um <laughs> i'm doing my best to try to coalesce your question um but overall uh let me see if i can get this straight as far as competition um the competition ends when somebody proves that their use of the resources is more efficient than the other person's idea but do you think that's ever like static? Do because I think isn't that, that isn't, that's... isn't that time relevant? Because like maybe we could have a better use for it in 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 five years, or maybe even in one year, maybe even in five minutes. So how how do we know? Like how long does that does that mandate go on for? That you have to you know that like maybe is it twelve hours that we use the steel this way? If for some reason science discovers a better use for it then you move on to what is proven to be better. I think that part of the problem, though, with your question is that... I, that's why I said I'm trying to coalesce exactly what you're asking, is that the parameters well, guess, of the question itself seem to be moving around a lot, so I'm yeah. doing my best to even get the scenario you're giving me because the parameters of that scenario are not clear to me. Well, without perfect information, we don't, we don't know what people... like their preferences could change from one day to the next. But without perfect information, we really don't know what the best resource, uh, the use of a resource is for tomorrow, right? What do you, define what you think perfect information is. Perfect information is just knowing everything, so that you know everything. Because you, we're going to always have scarcity of information. We'll never be able to know how many grains of sand are on the beach in the Pacific. Maybe we will be able to with a computer scanner, and it can dig a certain number deep. And even then, there's going to be some margin of error, I'm sure. But my, my point is that we don't, nobody knows what the best use of a resource is without people in, this, in the society trading with those goods and giving some kind of, you know, take, turning their preferences that are in their head into a value that you can see, and that facilitates the scarcity of the resource. So, like, if there's a lot of people who want trees, well, the price goes up, and people stop buying trees, and then they find an alternative or a substitute, kind of like what you're saying what happened to, you know, creating synthetic rubber. Well, that, thing, uh, that incentive is still there because if, there's, if there isn't enough of a given resource anymore, then people do have their motivation. Their motivation is to find the alternative so that they can continue to, um, you know, use what they want to use. Um, that uh, basically, in some of these cases, it's not really that different. You don't have to reinvent the rule on, you know, the, the, um, sorry, reinvent the wheel for every aspect of resource allocation. But, um, if you run out of a given thing, then the motivation is still there to replace it. I, that's why I said, um, I actually think that you, know, you brought up the examples of entrepreneurs. I mean, as I brought up also in the last broadcast, 
Um, the price mechanism by no means efficiently fixes what you're talking about. It just means that there's a system for people to kind of um, compete over it and fight over it, but it, um, you still end up with large pockets of people that it's not even necessarily the goal of the system itself to see to it or taking care of. That, that, I would have to say, is a major difference because in a market system, it's going to come down to who has the purchasing power, is the, is the determiner as far as to who gets what. In a resource-based economy, if there's a scarcity, then we basically treat it like a threat you know, to mankind in general, and then we move to overcome that scarcity. Um, there's two different diff- you know, um, differences in approach, and the motivation is there. Um, it's why I had you watch that Drive video, and you've already seen it. Um, just for natural reasons of wanting to explore or better your skills in something, um, but also just you know in the fact that I need that thing and there currently is not enough of the resource necessary to make it, so I'm going to start researching an alternative. All right. Well, you, you know we're talking about the scientific method. I hear that a lot from uh, RBEs, and I'm curious. Do you think that people in their daily lives? don't try to use the scientific method for resource allocation already. No. Like when I, when, I, when I am here and I'm uh, not just dumping, you know, uh, food down the drain or throwing it away in the trash can, it's because I'm better off not doing that. You see what I'm saying? So I'm not, I, I usually tend, people tend to try to want to at least for what they perceive. They think that they're going to be better off when they do an action usually. Maybe not smoking and stuff like that, or even being lazy. They might even know uh, that it's bad, but right then in the moment to them, it's worth it. So they, they at least at that minimal time have a perceived gain, or else they wouldn't do it. They'd just do the other thing that they thought was going to be more pleasurable or better for them, whatever, the, whatever they seek the most. The consumer culture actually is entirely fueled by the irrationality that they encourage within the consuming populace. Um, that's the major difference. Um, I mean, as far as like science and using the scientific method, I mean, I described to you, for example, the app that was literally, all it did was make your iPhone say that you were rich and it did nothing else. And people spent a thousand dollars on that thing, you know, the thousand dollar handbags and the thousand dollar shoes, you know, scientifically, those are all obviously asinine, but because of the, uh, social stratification element in our society that consumerism, you know, it basically encourages, you end up with all kinds of irrational purchases that people do all the time, solely because of the um, you know, basically socially engineered sociological rewards that people are given. Oh, did you see that guy driving that Ferrari? You know, all of a sudden, women are responding to him because they've been conditioned to respond to wealth as being, you know, a personification of, you know, um, benefit for themselves, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that's, I would say, is, is the major difference. I mean, if you had people honestly using the scientific method in their day-to-day consumer decisions, companies that, you know, practice um, environmentally unsound practices would already be going out of business, and they're not, you know. Um, do you think that most rich people today do so to purposely got rich just to to be rich and flaunt it, or do you think they did it to have a better life and to have an easier life and to have less stress in their life? Well, I actually am pretty good friends with a few fairly wealthy people, and I have some family that is too. And generally, I mean, of course, it always depends on... Uh, the history involved. Were they a struggling poor person at one time, you know, um, or were they, or did they inherit their money? 
Um, one of the things that you find, which is frequently an issue, is that people who are very wealthy are actually not necessarily very happy. Um, and more specifically, you know, like you see uh, celebrities and such getting into trouble, getting into drugs, getting into alcohol all the time. Um, and I've seen rags-to-riches wealth people who generally did everything that was demanded of them. They went and got their expensive college loans and then went to school and then worked really hard, um, you know, get near the, you know, get, say, to around the middle age, and then they're not happy. Like, the payoff is not there. They bought all the stuff, but they're still actually not very fulfilled. In many cases, they become very bitter, um, and they usually end up taking it out on their children. At least that's the... Um, thing that I've seen frequently, I can think of a couple of people specifically that come to mind that obviously I'm not going to name on this radio show, but people in my personal life that I've watched go from, you know, very poor to suddenly, you know, very rich because they worked really hard the whole way. And yeah, they do, you know, have a nicer house and, you know, they probably have a little bit more financial security. But what ends up happening is, is they start blowing their money on bullshit all the time because they're expecting that, you know, because you can get a temporary high, for example, from buying these consumer goods. Um, you know, you can you can get a temporary high from buying the junk. You see it also in your children when they buy stuff that was so heavily advertised to them. They play for it for five, play with it for five minutes, and then they dump it, and then they move on to something else. You know, that that pattern is established at a very young age. When you watch the documentary Consuming Kids. They teach that the whole shebang pretty well. Um, so to answer your question, at least on those kinds of people, I think that uh, consumerism essentially reminds me an awful lot of heroin because you know the, the dealers get you in and they get you addicted. And then as you're basically watching your life disappear because you're forever caught in the cycle of consumption and working for more money to then in turn consume more junk, you're finally getting to the end of the road and you're like, I don't really actually feel much better than I did before. Um, and they tend to try to feed that addiction with still more heroin or still more consumption, as the case may be. People who already had wealth, that's another category, um, uh, generally, in fact, you know, many of the kids who inherit, you find that uh, have all kinds of emotional problems um, because they, too, have basically been given kind of an artificial idea um, they have everything that they want. They're given everything they want, and then they you find them shoplifting, um, you know, because they they need something else, some other stimuli to keep their you know keep their lives interesting. Because having all the jet skis they want and the yachts and the you know the sports cars is just not doing it for them, and that's because material goods, um, the whole thing essentially is it's a profit-driven scam that was engineered to get us on board with buying their junk. It's it's kind of funny. The, the the difference that we have in this mindset because you you point to like a materialistic mindset and what I first do is when I see people trying to buy these material goods I think why are they trying to buy these material goods and it's so that they can conform with the collective and the commune and the group that's in the niche that they want to be in they want to be in this niche in this one group in this sect and so they want to conform and so the, the reason I see that they reach for these materialistic items is because uh, they're afraid to be an, an individualist, and because they're afraid that if they're not like everybody else, everybody will push them away. So that's why I, I see it from that perspective, and because of that, uh, they just happen to do what other people want, which is to conform, uh, and, and usually they want to have the, the nicer lifestyle 
And so it just happens to be that uh, they, they naturally levitate towards this uh, way of trying to build more wealth so that they can just enjoy life more. But I think it's more of, of a conformity issue. That's interesting. Well, when we go back to um, – and I agree that you know the non-aggression principle and freedom, obviously. Well, really, uh, real quickly, just let me comment yeah. a little bit on conformity. Right, right. I absolutely agree with that, um, and I brought that up in my social control presentation. I don't know if you watched that or not, the Z Day 2013. Um, yeah. But I think that the same people that are involved with consumerism are absolutely plugged into conformity and absolutely use it to for the, for their profits. Absolutely, um, that's why we have kids who are making fun of kids because they can't afford guest jeans and are just wearing Wrangler jeans, you know, and treat those kids like they're lesser or inferior. I absolutely think that's socially engineered. No question. Um, from childhood on, I think that people who want to sell you junk are very good at plugging that into the sociology of a given society. Right. Well, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, and we can maybe move this part of the discussion over to my segment next week, sure. but, you know, the, a free society Obviously, people are going to be able to do whatever they want, and that means things we sometimes disagree with. And I guess that would that would mean zeitgeist too. Not that you know zeitgeist. Maybe, maybe the the culture will continue on. Uh, maybe it's you know I don't know. I'm just bringing up the hypothetical idea that even inside of zeitgeist, people still might have some form sort of fashion or something like that. Anyway, um, and not that it's so you know neatly packaged and focused towards a certain thing that somebody's trying to sell, but just the whole idea of, of fashion itself, I, I would think that people wouldn't just want to conform overall in general for everything. They'd want to stand out. People have mohawks and stuff. And I'm sure you agree with that. But when we, when we look over at the actual allocations, once again, of the resources, so let's say we, have, we get to the point where we have uh, like five different scientists. We kind of went over this last time. And then they, they finally come to a conclusion on one thing. Let's say they actually do come to a conclusion on one thing. And so they implement it. How long until you can reuse the scientific method to change it, that time period? You see what I'm saying? So how much, how much time is there necessary for something to be implemented? So let's say they say, well, you know what? This, this time we're going to go with uh, diamonds uh, to be used in these tables in this manner and for these screws so that they'll never break or something like that, right? So uh, how, how long until innovation comes along and the computers build something new that they stop to look at a different way of doing something? I would say that it, um, they'll start looking at it immediately because you're always trying to forever improve the situation. Um, obviously, you have to utilize a little common sense on implementation. Um, you know, for example, uh, you know, it's also like when it comes to designs, this is another very important issue of products that the RBE would produce, is that they have to be easily upgradable. They have to be, uh, there's a term for it, I'm going to say mono... Uh, Modular, I believe, might be the term. Um, but basically, you know, for example, if you have a cell phone case, and then you know, and then you design a better cell phone chip, then the the old cell phone can accept the old chip. Um, you know, you take out the pieces as they're upgraded, and you you know, and you upgrade them easily. Uh, you see some of that with personal computers. Like obviously, you can put in a new video card and things like that. But you also see the plan obsolescence that gets put into that in our current paradigm that wouldn't exist in an RBE is that, you know, for example, I wanted to upgrade my previous computer. The motherboard was not, um, basically was designed in such a way that it wasn't compatible with, is and you literally could not physically install some of the components that came out that were better. Um, and in order for me to upgrade it, I had to get stuff that, of course, the market stopped producing. 
um, you know, as compared to that, um, you could put, you know, put as a factor into your designs that every single component is removable and replaceable um, as it goes on. And then eventually, every now and then, obviously, we're going to get to a point where we're going to have to start over, but um, as in, like, you know, start over with a new product, but that can all be evaluated rationally and scientifically um, and then pursued. I don't think it's going to happen anywhere near as often, however, when you don't have a bunch of people who are conditioned to frequently feel that they need the new item. You know, because beyond planned obsolescence, uh, advertising leads to perceived obsolescence, which is another term of basically just, I think that I need, you know, the latest iPod, even though the one I have right now is just fine. But of course, I want to be able to go hang out with my friends and brag about my new iPod. So I go out and buy that one and throw the other one in a landfill. Well, you know, like, when they upgrade the phones, like, the first generation didn't have 4G, it didn't even have a camera, so every, every time that they go forward, the, the, the price of the phone usually stays about the same price, but they just keep adding features, um, and that's why now people can do face-to-face and enjoy family time. That that technology wasn't around, you know, even 30 years ago, so I just want to kind of say, you know, th- that's kind of the innovation of the market, no, no, cameras being added later is one thing, but, you know, um, some of the quote-unquote upgrades that I've seen between people's, you know, iPods and stuff just seem to be really irrelevant. Like, I, it's like I cannot imagine buying an entirely new iPod for some of those features. Um, but, you know, as far as, like, you know, uh, innovations of the market, um, are you suggesting that that's only through the market that such innovations could be reached? People couldn't just decide to build cameras under their own phones? Well, they can. Uh, that's what I encourage everybody to do is to continue to innovate. I, I think the market pushes innovation more than, you know, having one central authority kind of have resource control of a lot of resources because then people can have different options and alternatives and see if titanium works better than aluminum or plastic or something like that. And so not just trying one thing but trying multiple things. I, it might not be the most efficient way in the short term, but I think in the long run, it really does help. And here's, I guess, one of my concerns, and this is why we're still focusing on uh, really the the allocation system of uh, resource-based economy is, what if 50,000 people want something and they think that their scientific method or calculation in their algorithm system, maybe Zeitgeist System 2.0 says, uh, well, actually, this this could work. And then another 50,000 say, well, actually, you know, this this way actually works, and we our scientific calculations, it, it seems to come out. This happens to be a physics thing, right? We don't know all about physics and every single equation out there, so <laughs> there might be some confusion between computer algorithms. And so what, what would happen, we have these extensive, very difficult uh, you know, decisions to make here, and these algorithms that are here, and, and about the same amount of people on each side say that the scientific method shows that their way is the right way. What, what, would, what would happen I believe I answered a question very similar to this in the last broadcast, and um, I actually don't think that science is a matter of opinion. You, you can't, um, if, if something is better than something else, then you can test its performance, rate its performance, and that's all mathematical. It doesn't come down to a question at that point. All right. So what do you, what do you think about, argu- have you ever heard of argumentation ethics? Define what you mean by argumentation ethics. Okay. Basically, it states that I, when I, there, there's two options that we have in our course, in our day-to-day life, you know, when I'm com- trying to communicate with somebody else. I can either 
try to talk to you, have a conversation, argument, argumentation, whatever you want to word it as, discussion, or we can jump right into armed conflict, right? And so, in, in essence, the very fact that we are, that you even talk to me in the first place proves that the voluntary action is the preferred action. And because of that, we have the, the root, we have some kind of a, a scientific, this is a praxeological root here, we have some kind of a scientific background, this is where Austrian economists usually come from, that we are individuals, right? We're not all plugged into the matrix, and because of, of, of we choose to talk, we're proving that we're individuals, in essence. That we'll, when we choose to talk, we prove that we're not doing conflict, that we respect the rights of others, and that we are individuals, those type of three tenets. And because of argumentation ethics, in, in this context, it's basically saying that we are individuals, right? And, uh, I, I mean, obviously, you, you do s subscribe to that type of a, a thought process, or... I think I might be having trouble getting. Yeah. It's, it's a difficult. It's a difficult sub subject to just summarize real quickly. Like well, this. well, right, and or it's. I'm trying to understand the relevance. Um, go uh, ahead. Uh, in, Try in, to in, es in essence, though, we we choose to use logic. I mean, that, I'm just trying to to say that even even as our rational basis. Obviously, we make irrational decisions. Uh, somebody else can point out that I did something irrational. Now, to me, at the time, it might have been rational, right? But because of of this, we have an objective valuation that individuals are individuals. That's that's. I'm. We we were talking. What, what we were just bringing up. You had just talked about something else. I'm trying to remember what it was that led me into that. Well, something to... can seem irrational. You know, seem rational to somebody at a given time. It doesn't. Whether or not something is rational, however, is independent of what your ability to perceive if it's rational is or is not. You try to achieve clarity, but there are all kinds of things that can prevent you from recognizing that something that you want to do is irrational if you're not careful. We, we were talking about objectivity. That's what it was. And you were saying that there's only, like, the scientific method would most likely only come down to one answer, right? Mm -hmm. And basic, basically, argumentation ethics states that because we're individuals, we have to decide our own lives, and in order to do that, we have to have as many decisions in our, in our realm as possible so that we can make our own decisions in our own lives because we don't have this perfect information. I, I know I keep coming back to perfect information and the economic calculation problem, but I've, I really am curious because I just I don't understand how the factors of production would be valued even through the scientific method if you don't have anything to input into the scientific method. Like if you don't have to say, well, we're going to need 16,000 tons of coal in five years, mm -hmm. I mean, that, even that is just a, a guess. We don't really know, right? But without without people trading inside of a system that, that kind of takes these subjective preferences and makes them object, objective again, there's there's no way to know even for change or innovation. Because because let's well, think about this. What, what what would what would happen if we did have a zeitgeist world and somebody wanted to opt out? Like they just you know what I don't like the way that the, the system's running, right? And mm -hmm. out of 7 billion people, this isn't too hard to imagine. Even if they're, we, we could argue they're crazy, okay? So, they, but they don't want to do it. What, like, where would they be able to go? Wherever they want. But if you're saying that we have the resources, we, we, like all the resources would already be divvied up in the world. You see what I'm saying? Um, well, 
obviously uh, an efficient model doesn't use all of the resources that are currently active and available. But um, if you've ever looked at any of the designs that Fresco talks about, for example, about what he would ideally suggest given the information that he had at the time, um, a great portion of the planet is actually just left there untouched um, because uh, he actually thinks we need to cultivate the biosphere just for the sake of humanity, well, every living organism on this planet's survival. Um, there'd be plenty of places to go. I, I had to answer the same question with Charlie Veach because he is an anarcho-primitivist was asking me, you know, like, what, what, what would we do with them? And I'm like, we wouldn't do anything with you. If you want to go live out there, go for it. You know, and nobody's going to stop you. It's, we don't do violence. Ever. I got you, but, but let's say that Zeitgeist does... The, the computer system says, well, actually, we need that, this uh, land over here. We need that land over there for, to cultivate more corn and to grow everything. And so if, or it, just to, to allocate who can have which beach property at what time, right? Well, I, 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 like even in the year, because we can't just look at today. What about in the year 1 million? So there's going to be a lot more people all over the earth, and all the land's going to be taken over by zeitgeist most likely. Where would people who didn't want to be in like is there even an escape route for them? Well, let me say um, uh, when you say the land that we need, the computer says the land that we need. Um, are you suggest you, okay? Let, once again, we we come back to time frames and what parameters of the conversation we're talking about. Are you talking about a world where there's a full resource-based economy? where right. essentially everybody has already voluntarily decided to go along with that system, and therefore the entire planet is occupied with a scientifically efficient um, you know, city, multi-city system linked together, et cetera, et cetera, production facilities set up, resources provided for everything that you need, um, and you're suggesting what will happen to people who don't want to be part of that? Right, right. So let's say that they're upset because... The computer system said we should uh, cut down a thousand trees for the whole year. Let's say it's, it was an amazing deal, and this computer system cut down a thousand trees only, and it somehow was able to stretch it out through 3D printing and all the other things. These materials to the whole world for trillions of people, just a thousand trees. But this one environmentalist was just like, oh, "I don't want any trees cut down. How dare you use this tree?" And they couldn't find another way around the tree or whatever material needs to be down the road. How, so, yeah, I mean, what if somebody has a, a moral disagreement with, uh, you know, maybe the production system that uh, was was pumping out chicken? You see what I'm saying? And, and they didn't like how uh, there was people like what are the, the vegans would be upset that everybody's eating meat, right? So, like, what would happen to the people who don't want to support this system? Fresco actually suggests that um, through science we can overcome the need to ever kill animals ever again and that people can have meat synthetically. That's currently being experimented with. So um, he actually thinks eventually we'll get out of that. Environmentalism is kind of at the... But what about the religious this, people? So. What about the religious people? Like, there's people who, who uh, don't want to eat meat, meat at all, and just the fact that you kill a cow, maybe like to a Hindu, uh, the, those people, let's say you still have a religion around somehow, because uh, I don't know if we'll ever get rid of religion. I think we can make a pretty good push for it. But let's say that there's people – maybe they don't have to be Hindu. They can just be like, I just don't like the fact that you guys actually cut up – you guys actually serve steaks. How can you kill another animal? I don't want to be a part of this system. I can't support it anymore because it – but it's what I consider murder. Where do these people go? Um, 
<laughs> I'm, I'm sitting here trying to imagine what you're suggesting actually happening in a fully resource-based economy. Well, imagine whatever, uh, but okay. Um, well, hold on, let me let me kind of summarize. In the year one million, there's a person <laughs> who's born, a girl's born, and then at the age of fifteen, she realizes that, uh, and she's a vegan, and she doesn't like the fact that Zeitgeist actually endorses and facilitates the murder of cows. And so they, she does not want to support this, this, what to her is a murderous system, just like I don't want to support statism. So where, where would she be able to go in the year one million when Zeitgeist has already t- taken over? And she doesn't want to support the murderous system. She'd rather just go live somewhere else, but all the land's taken up. Like, how would that be handled? There will never be a time when all the land is taken up. That was kind of what I was indicating to you. Even before. in the year one million? Yeah, because he doesn't believe that the entire planet should be covered in in a metropolises. It's not it's not economically not ecologically sustainable. But if you have if you have one gajillion people, you're 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 gonna you're gonna have people everywhere. I mean, like how the year gonna, one million? Yeah, right. The, Space year one travel. Million. But still, I mean, people. What if people just want this is home Earth, man. This this place is gonna be this is scarce resource right here. People are going to be all over this planet, even just as a landmark tradition. I can't believe I still have a house on planet Earth. Can you imagine that? Yeah, I, yeah, that was the original Earth. You know, everybody wants a place there. So, where's where she going to? All the property someday is going to be taken. In fact, governments today make sure that it already is taken, right? So, but like, what what will happen? I, I really. Are you saying that you don't think there's ever going to be a point where everybody's going to try and claim all the land, even when there's like a hundred gajillion people on Earth? It is absolutely against the design models in question and for good reason the majority uh, well, how do you stop people from breeding how do you stop people from breeding um education <laughs> all right but what if they want to breed i mean they love children and they want to have offspring well um generally uh in fact you're kind of noticing a trend to this direction already uh less people are deciding to have children already due to the environmental conditions on the planet when you point out to them um, how many people can be safely uh, taken care of within a given resource circ- circumstance, they will tend to make their decisions accordingly. Well, they don't do that in China. People break the law all the time to have kids and then put them under the other people's names. They'll, they'll try and get around these rules all day long so they can seek their own betterment. Yes, and China has uh, artificial cultural stigmas about having boys that influences them. Um, that isn't rational or logical by any stretch of the imagination. But it, it, it applies to all boys and girls. You can only have two kids, and that's it. And people break that law right. all the I time. I know, and the reason usually they're trying to break that law is because in Chinese culture, if you don't have a son, there are certain things that you cannot do. Um, it's it's all archaic. But, but there's people law. who have sons who still break the law. I, I just saw, I've seen numerous reports in they the last few months. Kids. Yeah, I mean, people break the law and have boys. I mean, they, they, this, there's a, you know, there's a, 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 what is it? How many? A trillion people or a billion people there? You're talking a lot of of people, and there's a few people there that want to just continue having kids. What I'm saying is, you can educate all day long, but if people want to have kids, what what's more important? Them having kids uh, and seeking their own betterment, or 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 them uh, just like. Saying, doing whatever the, the, the computer says. You see what I'm saying? There's going to be a conflict here. And what if, once again, we come back to the vegetarian. So what is the vegetarian who doesn't want to support the system that is maybe even efficiently producing uh, meat, obviously, before we can somehow have the synthetic system? Maybe it doesn't come around for, for years and there's this time in between. What's, what's that vegetarian going to do when all the land's taken up 
which I mean, down the road, that's going to happen, and they just don't want to support the system anymore, or somebody just doesn't want to to support electricity like the Amish. Um, actually, the Amish are free to go live any way they want, um, and Jacques Fresco brought up that example already. Um, as far as I guess, what I'm trying to get down here so that I can give you an answer is. Um, as the conversation I'm finding is the two of us are talking, as the conversation is evolving, the you know once again the parameters of the scenario keep changing. Um, the best answer I can give you, um, given where we've been going with this so far, is that whenever there's scarcity, we act to um, avoid that scarcity and overcome that scarcity um, through science. If somebody needs to go live somewhere. Um, I uh, and I have said to you that yeah, I do not believe there is ever going to be a time when all land on the planet is occupied because it's not. It's literally intrinsically not in any of Fresco's designs. Um, that he actually wants the majority of the planet to be able to heal and go back to its natural state. Um, and I, I guess my point is nobody really cares about. Jacques Fresco's plans when they are looking at their own children. I mean, no offense to Jacques Fresco, unless he's saying, you know, uh, what they want to hear, they're going to do what they want. This is just the way the future is going to go. Um, people are going to have kids. That's just my analysis, and I just think that there's, there's no way that we could stop, even through educational efforts, people from having kids. Because why would we even need to stop? the amount of growth if we could have systems that regenerate carbon dioxide back into oxygen and we have uh, no, no issues with that and we can handle all the waste, let's say we could vaporize it, why, why would we want? What would there be a need to educate people on about depopulating? I don't, I don't understand. If it's not a threat to anybody, then what's the big deal? Why would we have to educate people about well, it, having kids? You only educate people to, a, to the point where they understand that there's a threshold that would be a threat um, and not to just them, but to anyone involved in that scenario. Um, I've pointed out to you that the trends are showing that, especially in societies, um, because in many cases, having large quantities of children is generally a direct response to environment. I have a bunch of children because I probably only expect two or three of them to survive, or I need them for labor if I'm a farmer, et cetera, et cetera. People don't just randomly decide to have children for no motivation. They may have a couple obviously just within their their natural interactions. But I think that the, the idea of like, well, what are we going to do with a surge of overpopulation? Let me give you a comparison then um, to what I think we would do as compared to what I've seen done so far. Okay, overpopulation, should it occur, as in if for some reason there's an irrational surge in population... Oh, are you defining it first? What over yeah, the, that's what okay. I'm saying. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Um, in the, in, the, in the Venus Project Zeitgeist approach, science would then be used to try to find ways to curb any of the negative effects of overpopulation while encouraging people at the same time, hey, we've only got room for so many people here. Keep that in mind while you're having children. Okay. Um, it, what I have seen in the rest of the system as it currently stands, and I mean, we can talk more about this, for example, in the anarcho-capitalist example or the current status capitalist system is people who decide to have too many children and there isn't enough resources to take care of them currently are just left to die. 
that's that's what happened to the people in Africa when they overpopulate themselves. It's what happened in India when they overpopulated themselves. In a system where they're made to fight for their resources, it's just like, bam, man, tough luck. Um, our suggestion is try to fight the issue at the core by teaching people about the negative effects of overpopulation, overcoming irrational cultural and religious tendencies to overpopulate through education. That's where that comes in. And as science evolves, we have found that religion and cultural issues become weaker as time goes on, as people get more and more understandings of the actual phenomenon that f affect their environment. They don't have to go out and be fruitful and multiply in the name of God after they understand you know, the irrationalness of that. Okay, um, so is it possible that there could be an overpopulation problem? I think it's not very likely, given the rest of the scenario as I've laid it out. If it does happen, we will do our best to address that situation rationally in an attempt to preserve human life with no force. But what, okay, so I'm, to me it doesn't really necessarily have to be overpopulation, it's just a big population. The, I, you know, I don't think the world, if, even in the future, will ever become overpopulated because of technology. I think that markets will adapt, we'll be able to find ways, uh, if there's a carbon dioxide overage or an oxygen shortage, we'll find ways to uh, clean the air. People will have an incentive to live. We actually uh, agree on that point. Yeah. I just don't think you need a market to do that. See, I do because of the economic calculation problem. I don't think you'll be able to uh, allocate the resources efficiently. Oh, but here's here's my thing, though. Uh, hold on, hold on a second. Let me okay. let me back up the bus on this real quick, and let me pin down okay. a very specific issue. Okay. Why would a market be more effective at producing what is necessary to deal with overpopulation than simply? being motivated to not die and therefore producing the, you know, the science necessary to deal with overpopulation. Well, you just acted, you kind of made a fallacy there when you state that only, only people who want to do it through central planning care about living. People who are not centrally planned or not going to a computer system still have the same incentive to live. And if anything, they'll be able to control the resources around them much easier and be able to come to different forms of ideas. Some might not work. So the first time somebody tries something, it might not work. And that ha might happen in Zeitgeist, right? And they'll probably focus on maybe a couple things. I don't know. Usually I, I would assume that in, in an attempt for efficiency, they would try just one thing, whereas the market will try thousands and thousands of different things. Uh, whereas NASA comes up with one space shuttle, we have other people who have already built space shuttle shuttles are just not allowed to, to shoot them up. And some people are now. Within the last few years, they've... Uh, legalized some of the, the airspace, and now people are going up into space on private uh, I think I've isolated what the problem is. The limitations and experimentation that you're talking about are a status construct. They're not something that the Venus Project advocates. If, um, you know, as far as trying thousands and thousands of things, especially in a world where people can have more time to innovate and develop things, just like they prod about, for example, in the, in the Drive video, what, you know, the secret behind what motivates people, Daniel Pink, um, I think that you're assuming that for some reason uh, the market is going to create all these opportunities for experimentation that suddenly would not exist in a resource-based economy. And I think that the limitations that you're bringing up have to do with the state apparatus that isn't going to exist. Well, if the system says, uh, in my opinion, like, what, what if somebody does 
want to make something, but they don't have because you're not going to have control of the resources on the zeitgeist or big, you know resource based economy. You can't just be like, well, that zeitgeist, but now it's mine and I'm taking it. That's that's not going to fly with everybody else. Everybody's going to say, well, that zeitgeist's property, even though people don't see property like that. The reason we have property isn't because of, of necessarily greed. It's because there's just people with differences in opinions. And because of that, uh, and they want to live their own lives, we just allow them to do as they want and trade with others, and there's no other need for a central authority to come in. But if they, if, if somebody does have a, a, an issue with a zeitgeist, uh, they're not going to be able to do anything because they won't have the resources to maybe curb that problem. So let's say there's a big meteor coming towards the Earth, well, if you're in a free society or you're in a zeitgeist-based society, same time frame and, and all that stuff going on, the zeitgeist people will say, well, we, we might not view that meteor isn't – it's not, you know, not really a threat that we see that we need to start working on right now. And you're saying, well, what if you're, whoever programmed the computer is wrong and that meteor is more of a problem than they're really saying and we're, we're going to be two hours behind the time where we can blow up the meteor before it hits the earth – of course, this is all hypothetical, but if you have these differences, even on smaller issues, there's, there's no way to do anything about it because the resources, even if you want or petition to the resource-based economy to let you have some of these, uh, the, whatever resources they have, they're going to say, well, it needs to go towards other production that's more efficient. So you're not going to be able to control it, whereas in a free society, you could trade your car for it or your house and maybe get it yourself and put, you know, get other 15 other investors together and say, listen, there's this meteor coming. Uh, you know, we at least have the ability to control some of these resources now, whereas in, in, in a total world of, of zeitgeist resource-based economy, there's, the, the resources are technically controlled, which means they're owned because you'd have to – to control something, you'd have to at least have some ideal of ownership involved. Uh, to be able to control the resources, they'd have to be able to exclude others or else they wouldn't – the computer system would never work in the first place. you see my issue? Um. I think that a lot of these examples that you're giving are highly dependent on extremely irrational behavior that I don't foresee happening. Um, if it's possible, a lot of research, especially when it comes to prototypes and all of that, starts in the computer model phase. And computer models are verifiable, falsifiable, testable. And if you take your computer model further than that, you know, and then you can move on to actually making physical prototypes. That's how the scientific method, when it comes to engineering, works. But you, you see my issue? There, there's still going to be, even if we don't want scarcity, nobody wants scarcity, right? I mean, I wish everybody could have whatever they wanted, really. In essence, it'd be, that's the nicest thing, is everybody to have maximal happiness, right? I mean, that's why we live, is to enjoy life. Um, I don't want people... Yeah. So my, my thing is, though, we're going to still have scarce, scarcity of some kind, right? Even Even... If, if we have a voluntary society, I guess, I, in my opinion, I, a voluntary society like an anarcho-capitalist, uh, to me, is just a, a little bit more uh, grounded when they say that we can't, we can get really close to ending scarcity, but we'll never be able to end it. And I think that Zeitgeist sometimes kind of makes the jump that we're going to be able to end scarcity, and, uh, it may, it may, and then people have a disagreement of what scarcity is by definition, uh, at least a post-scarcity world. So some people say, well, well, obviously we won't be able to have you know a million jets for everybody just go fly around, but you don't need that. But that's still scarcity. You, you see what I'm getting at here? I mean, we're, we're, it's, we're yeah, the problem have... is that it's only in a, okay. Yeah, the, the million jets is still scarcity, 
because people can't have a million jets, but it kind of comes back down to you know the, the fallacious notion that that therefore means the entire system that we're proposing must be scrapped because people can't have a million jets. No, is, no, no. Yeah, okay, good. I'm glad uh, we're not going well, down that road because that's no, I'm not saying just because of that. I'm just trying to, to say that I, I would like if I heard somebody admit that we can never get rid of, of, of time scarcity. We can never get rid of, of property or land scarcity. So, I mean, I, I just think it's, the, it's, it's really honest and it would be easier for people to digest your stuff if you said really post-scarcity uh, isn't really post-scarcity. It's just post of what we feel is need scarcity. You see what I'm saying? Because you can never really have anything post-scarcity. So I just, it really, I guess, irks me when I hear well, somebody talk about, like, we're going to be able to just have whatever we want. Because okay, I understand to... a little better what you're trying to say now. Um, okay. All right. Well, let me, okay, let me address that. Did you watch the brief No Utopia clip? The yeah. Doc Fresco that I linked a couple times? I've watched all the stuff, yeah. Okay. Um, the No Utopia clip that's taken from um, Future by Design, uh, just as him pointing out, you know, he's like, there there will be occasional problems. There's no question about that. What this is about is trying to utilize the scientific method to achieve rational solutions to problems. And doing that, um, science, for example, can't give you all the answers because all the answers are not currently achieved. That's the perfect information you were talking about. What science can do, however, is give you the best possible answer with the information that we have now. And that tends to lead to the best decisions. Um, especially when you're dealing with physical, obviously physical phenomenon. Um, so uh, there will occasionally be times, and that's one of the reasons why I keep bringing up the issue of the, the value change, which is even, as a, like I said, Stefan pointed out on his, one of his videos recently, he feels that the current people we have right now could not live in an anarcho-capitalist society. There are certain value changes that occur. Um, for example, I noticed in my own life, after I understood the power of advertising and consumerism, my own motivations changed a great deal. Uh, I don't care about fashion at all anymore. Like, not even a little is it even important to me. It's not very important to my children either. Um, as an example, uh, my, con my consumption habits changed incredibly and I'm not, you know, a person who lives in that incredibly, you know, evolved society. I just figured out that I was being duped. And after I did, my attitude changed. Um, those are the kinds of value changes that will come along with it. And some of the other examples that I've brought up, like uh, an access-based economy, I think, is a term that uh, uh, another fellow from Community Planet brought up. Um, Community Planet is an organization similar to ours in some respects. And... You know, it, when you deal with, like, for example, when you study the city models, you know, everybody doesn't have to own their own golf clubs, like I was bringing up the golf clubs earlier. Um, if you want to own golf, golf clubs, you can. We don't really think the majority of people are really going to want to do that, especially after they've, you know, considered the ramifications of, do I really want to own this when I could just get one here and use it when I need it and then put it away when I don't and then, you know, go back to life? Um, Attitudes about what it is that we own and what it is that we borrow will change a lot. You know, a lot of it, you know, the one of the personification that they bring up is uh, production of things that could be utilized in such a way like we do already in public libraries. And libraries, for example, are loaning stuff out, you know, cataloging it, and then people bring it back when they're done with it. Um, and they're expanding beyond books and into equipment, things like that. Um, there's already... Um, 
co-ops and such where you can get the tools that you need when needed and then you put them back when you're done. Um, and that's an example of an access. You know, having access to things, particularly things that you don't use all the time, is more important than personal ownership, especially if you're living in a society where you know, you're never going to have to worry about not having those things. And if for some reason they're not available, then the society seeks to replace them. Um, rather than seeking to capitalize on your need. Um, that's, I think, you know, at the focus when you're talking about you know, dealing with the issue of scarcity. There was another thing I was pointing out. It's like we're talking about, well, when will people clearly know what they want? Uh, Fresco brought up the example of Eskimos. You know, if you ask an Eskimo what he wants, um, he only has a concept um, of what he's been exposed to within his physical environment. And as a result, he doesn't know that he might want a stainless steel refrigerator because he's never heard of one. Um, once you educate people as to what the um, resources and the society are capable of performing, then people will adjust accordingly. Um, the other example that I would bring, and this is one of the reasons I went on that particular point about uh, materialistic people who get to the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow and then for some reason still don't find that their lives are enriching, is I've also studied a different culture. Um, one of my shows you guys can listen to if you go back to the archives is my interview with Tammy Strobel. Um, she's part of the minimalist movement. Um, they try to reduce all of their personal items down to 100 or less. And at first, I, um, and I've, I, I brought this up, for example, to Free Talk Live people, and the guy was like, well, wow, that's terrible. You know, you have no wealth, et cetera, et cetera. And um, Tammy actually lives extremely happy, and she compares her life to what it was before when she was, uh, you know, basically basing her entire life in the consumption and acquisition of material goods instead to the acquiring and acquisition of experiences. She spends money on going places and doing things rather than on owning junk. Um, as a result, you know, her life is way less stress. Um, She's very happy. In fact, before I interviewed her, I did another show that I think is the first one listed on my archives called Why Money and the Stuff You Buy With It Does Not Make You Happy. Um, we currently live in a society that has essentially, um, you know, as I said, um, when you watch The Century of Self, they take you through it step by step. This is how we were socially engineered to become extremely consumeristic within our society. When you get out of that, and particularly when you snap out of it, when you understand and, uh, the warning signs you know, that come to you, it's like, okay, somebody's trying to sell me something I don't need, um, you change. Your priorities change. What you spend your time on changes. What you're willing to spend your money on in the current society changes. And I think that people will change, especially when beyond just the issue of them realizing that they're actually shackled to their stuff rather than it being theirs, um, is also just the realization of what's you know, going to be beneficial to the survival of everybody who lives on this planet. All right. So uh, let's say that there's um, a certain amount of, you know, this is actually a question that Robert Kruger had. He, he wants me to ask you if there's a majority of beef eaters and they'll want something like prime rib or premium cuts and fillets. Very few will obviously ask for like the, cheeks, uh, the cheeks or the tripe or any of the, the poorer parts, right? The, the mm. less tasty and uncut uh, or unwanted cut leftovers. And so there's going to be this massive quantity that's left over. Isn't that considered waste? And how, I mean, like, how are we going to handle that? So say resource-based economy takes over tomorrow. What, what, what's going to happen 
with all the excess from like all the guts and stuff that people don't want to eat and that won't be used in other stuff. Well, we, I guess I want my, my, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Let me finish up real quick. Go ahead. Uh, I'm, so sorry, I'm sorry. I wanted to add that you know, like today, it will, and I think in a free society, we'd obviously see that much more uh, equitable response from this objective information. But today, they have lower prices for the parts that might not be as tasty, right? Uh, and, and, and this kind of makes it so, you know, the, 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 there's an equilibrium and, and the whole cow is, is going to go out uh, in some kind of quantity that's kind of equitable to, you know, you kill one cow and all the parts are going to be used, right? So, I mean, it seems like waste because nobody would want to eat all the, the crappy part of the cow, right? Um, well, we keep coming back to this meat example, and I keep having to remind people about the fact that um, we're not – frescoes, at least ultimate designs, don't really include um, massive factory farming of living creatures. Um, if you want to synthetically produce meat, then you could produce whatever part of it you want and use only resources necessary to do that. You know, just like, for example, now they're working on producing organs. If you can produce a kidney, if you could produce a heart, if you can produce some stomach, you can certainly choose which muscle you want to produce. Um, and that's where meat comes from. If there is no waste at that point. I'm not producing the entire cow up to and including all of the parts that I don't need. I'm producing exactly what I want, which is the portion utilized for bacon or steak or whatever. But we'll... we'll Jacques Fresco try to stop Zeitgeist if the scientific method says, well, it's actually really efficient just to mass produce uh, cows and breed them, and then we could just that way. There's you know we're going to try to starve starving feed starving kids in Africa, and if we care about them, we, the scientific method says we have to cut up more cows and send them to them. Uh, would he stop it from cutting up cows? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, would it be able to cut up cows? I know it's not part of his thing, but what if people do want that, and then and then they have enough engineers that they sway through lobbying to the computer system. Lobbying? Well, you know what I'm saying, where they could go up there and talk to – because obviously if they have a change in the computer system, they can go up and try to, to talk with others and change the computer system. I mean, to me, that's just lobbying. It's just – I guess in essence the same thing. Maybe you don't have like the – I'm the sorry. I guess when I'm I hear not, the word lobbying, I usually think they the go state, bribery. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> right, I'm just talking about... What are you going to bribe somebody with who doesn't need anything? Right, um, right. And that is a state you know, thing. That's for sure. Kind of a support, but... Uh, you see what I'm getting at here is that... Do you, do you see where I'm coming from? I, I believe I understand where you're coming from, but we keep coming back to the, the computer in all of your examples giving us an irrational answer that we're then supposed to go with. Um, I should probably explain a little bit about the computer, too, because I see that in the comments section constantly as people think that the computer's in charge or something like, um, you know, like it's HAL 9000 directing what you're doing on the ship, and that's not the case. But uh, let me get first to this issue um, you're suggesting that perhaps the irrational answer to solving Africa's hunger problem is going to be mass-producing cows, and there might be waste. Um, well, uh, the let's assume for a moment that that's true. I, I think it's a flawed premise, but let's assume that it's true. Um, any waste products or whatever, you know, things that people want less, um, well, if there's already a scarcity involved where there's people starving in Africa and we're producing hundreds of cows to deal with that, the people in Africa um, who are starving are going to eat whatever you give them. Um, we're going to try to give them the most healthy 
you know, options that are available. And whatever's left after that, you know, um, animal waste can be disposed of safely and it can actually enrich the soil that can then in turn be used to produce more food. But, I mean, like, why, why wouldn't we just make more cows? The scientific method would say, well, for these people to be really healthy, they should have the, the healthier parts of the cow that usually cost more money. So if we really want them to be the best off that they can be, uh, which is supposedly supposed to be good for society, we would want to feed them and just produce more cows, and that's what the scientific method says. But Jacques Fresco hadn't really, as you said, stated much about that, more about synthetic meat. But, I mean, obviously we don't have really mass synthetic meat right now, and I don't even think if, if a resource-based economy or computer or anything it took over tomorrow, like what you're saying, that it would automatically just create a, a meat synthesizer just out of nowhere. I mean, it, it, no, not out of nowhere, but that's the goal. That's one of the reasons why I said that it's important right. to note what time frame you're asking this question in. And I'm, I'm, I'm talking about right now for this one. Really, okay, like, so, so tomorrow, right. tomorrow, the next year, if we went to a resource-based economy, the best thing to do would just be to produce as much of the healthy meat, which is it's usually expensive, and and not feed them all like the the fatty you know poor meat right so basically we would give them we would, but then we'd have all this 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 waste right I mean like it just seems to me that if if you're gonna do some some of the things the best you might have some extra waste you see what I'm getting at but but then the zeitgeist and resource based economy usually says there's not going to be any waste I'm that just is trying the to, goal right so I'm trying to understand what, how how you would do that how like, how do you think this scenario would turn out? Do you think there would be way? Is there a way to to not have waste and to do to feed them all the parts? You see what I'm saying? Like, if you breed all the cows, and then not only that, the fact that uh, that some vegetarians might not like the fact that you're cutting up cows tomorrow. Uh, you know that we don't have a food synthesizer. So there's there's all these different factors and, and conflicts that I see arising from it. Uh, and I guess one more concern, and you can address all this in one fatal swoop if you want, is you know, what if there is, you know, once again, these conf conflicting ideas. So let's say you had said earlier that the scientific method would always be, you know, tried. So let's say we just came to a conclusion. We just tried something, a hypothesis real quick, and we came to a conclusion on something. And so that's what we're supposed to be using the copper for, right? It's going to be best in these steel pipes to send water to people in Africa or whatever. So that's going to be the best thing, and that we're going to, automatically try to reevaluate the scientific method later on, right? Well, well, what if somebody does have a better idea and they come up with it and there, there, there's 7 billion things out here that are factors that are always going into this. So the thing's always changing. Doesn't that create some uncertainty in the system in, in the fact that you won't be able to, like what if you start transferring the resource like the copper? And then all of a sudden the computer system changes and there, it's always in this uncertainty state like, well, now you have to ship it over to port A and then it takes three days to ship over there or something like that in some fast airplane and the, or in one day or something like that. It's hours, we'll say 20 hours. So you're wasting all this time. Do you see where I'm getting at? Because, because preferences change and, and even the scientific method on production, it's not constant. So in other words, as, as people, uh, maybe we have more kids or there's a certain amount of people that uh, change their, their eating habits. Well, the, the, the scientific method will be changing, and the quantity of things produced will be changing, right? So the answer is always going to be changing. But I, I'm, I really am curious about the time concept because 
every minute you'd be having to re-update and, uh, resources. You know, like today we don't really have to worry about it because some guy says, well, uh, I think there's a pretty good chance that by the time it gets there in 20 hours, it'll be produced and I can sell it off to this producer and then they'll buy it from me, this other raw material, and they'll have it for 22 hours and uh, the risk on the market says, you know, it's worth this amount and then they'll sell it off as a final good to somebody else, a retailer who will sell it, you know. So th there's actually a system that, of risk that goes into this but for the computer system, uh, if it messes up, it's not like the computer takes a hit, right? The, the people take, take the hit. So to me, it just seems like there's, there's going to be all these conflicting ideas and people coming up all the time, and they're not going to be able to come to a consensus on really uh, how to keep an updated uh, scientific methodly prove, you know, proven method going to where they actually have this production system that's going to be efficient because things are always changing. It just seems to me that there's there's no I don't hear anything about like a time limit that's been set. Uh like after, you know, five minutes we'll redo a, a hypothesis and see what the conclusion is on this. Um or we'll take another vote this time. It just seems like there's there's gonna be a lot of voting. Like people would just have to be at their computer all the time like clicking on yes or no or whatever questions throw up on their computer by the computer, which are programmed by somebody else. You, you see what I'm saying? There's just you're thinking that evolution will not be able to be directly correspondent to production. Is that, is that, meaning evolution of technology will not be able to be uh, directly connected to production. That essentially you feel that we can't produce things um, at the same speed at which they're innovated. Is that what I'm getting? No, not, not necessarily that. That people, because we have different preferences, there's no real way to quantify all of our wants and needs. And because of that, that's why I think that resources should be uh, left to individuals to decide what they want to do with, uh, and and they can trade and on open as long as it's an open and peaceful market, and they can trade voluntarily for these resources. I don't Provided see that they have the means to find any way to trade, and if they can't find anything that the people in question need to trade, if those resources are necessary for life, then those people are going to die. Well, I mean, I, I guess, what, can you give me an example of a free market society where this is happening? And you can't, you see, because Africa has been overrun. It's one of, considered one of the most centrally planned regions in the world, that and, and a lot of the Middle East. Um, they just okay. have a lot of property that's been taken away from individuals to not necessarily a zeitgeistian resource-based economy, but to a, a violent set of central planners, right? And 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 this... Is what has distorted us from having this example, right? Is the state violence? I'm saying before we can even get to a point where we can try any type of a zeitgeist hypothesis, we have to agree on the non-aggression principle. And this is why I, I think, in most cases, you know, uh, I'm trying to get the point across. I guess is that even in a zeitgeist world, there's going to be people that do things that we might not agree with, um, but we can't we can't just you know expect everybody to get into one system and to agree into one way of doing everything. I just don't think there is one best way to do everything. It may, maybe maybe there is one best way to uh, you know feed yourself as far as the best nutrients and stuff like that. But maybe we have a different perception on what the best way is, and you know, all these values are subjective, and I just I have a hard time seeing how Zeitgeist will try to quantify. Right, I've heard that um, a few times now. <laughs> I think that what we're basically where we're running at an impasse, which is the reason we haven't been able to move on, is I do not believe that desires and needs and such are unquantifiable. I don't think that that's information that is not 
something that we can't compute and understand. You may feel that way. Um, <laughs> I well, guess. No, what, what I'm saying is we can do it at least through a, an exchange system, it gives us some an idea because when people exchange things on the open market, it may, and it's not saying that one individual values something. There's obviously consumer and producer surpluses or losses in this. But uh, along the line overall of society, we can say, well, society values gold right now at, at this value. We know how much of this value is what, and it sets its scarcity. And, and, and we, just, we just, well, I guess the scarcity is already set, but we already know. Uh, you know what people are going to be trading, or how much they value it right now. In essence, S somewhat because of, of the of exchange, because people exchange with each other. But once you stop exchanging, there's no way to get that preference uh, visible. I, well, as I, I guess this is, I think, another one of the reasons why we're running into trouble because I find myself like trying to re reply by pointing out market versus resource-based economy, and I'm, and I'm trying to keep my anarcho-capitalist critiques for the <laughs> next shows. I know, I know. Um, but it seems like you want to compare the two, so it kind of puts me in a position where I have to answer you. Um, so uh, I would say that in all of my evaluations of both systems, what I came away from it with was that essentially market systems, regardless of the state, essentially move towards whatever's going to create the most profit at the time. And that does not by any stretch of the imagination mean a goal of making sure that everybody has what they need to survive. Um, markets can move on quite well and masses of people can starve if they can't figure out a way to take care of themselves. I am not convinced now that I have looked at it from both perspectives, because I did at one time, that simply removing the state out of the situation and then telling everybody to have a non-aggression principle in a circumstance where people are competing for things that they need to have or die, uh, I don't feel that that is going to gel and create a mechanism. And I think that one of the things that, you know, as was pointed out by economists, and I brought this up on the show before, the price mechanism itself is not effective. It's not an efficient means to make sure that everybody has what they need, or it, nor does it even try. It essentially just creates a circumstance, yeah, where people can freely trade. But I've never, you know, generally, in a, in, you've, you've been to my Facebook group, you've seen it. You know, usually I'm in a situation where I'm asking market people these hard questions about what happens to people who don't have what it takes to, you know, to take care of themselves for whatever reason. Perhaps they're a victim of market correction, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and essentially, the kind of answers I got from people were things like, well, you know, it's better for mankind if people who can't effectively find a way to, you know, m make their living in the market die off. You know, that way our species can evolve past that. And I was like, that is some really crazy, psychopathic, eugenic-sounding stuff. And um, then you've never said anything like that, obviously, or you wouldn't be on my show. It doesn't change the fact, however, that there are dark dealings, essentially, that happen in markets and people having to struggle for limited resources. And there are also issues of, as we said earlier, values of given items being distorted. Um, that's like, you know, why you end up with the $1,000 handbags I mentioned earlier. 
um, which is therefore also an inefficiency. There's an obvious inefficiency of resource allocation if somebody is stepping over a homeless person on the street to go into a store and buy a $1,000 handbag while the homeless person laying on the street has no way to, you know, to take care of themselves. You know, any of the, the homeless that the conservatives bring up who are supposedly all there because they want to be notwithstanding, I've met homeless people who have done everything and are still trying and are still very homeless and are still very hungry. Um, that's why I say that I think that when people suggest that uh, the market and people trading and moving back and forth and maneuvering for advantages over one another in the name of their own survival is supposedly effective um, or rather efficient, I, I think that that's just not honest. Um, I think that honesty would state that we're in a situation instead where some are people are going to make it and some people are not. And people suggest that this is the only fair way that we all simply supposedly have equal opportunity to fight one another to the death, essentially, over the resources necessary to survive. A resource-based economy model does not have the goal of maximizing profits for shareholders or even for individuals outside of corporate personhood. It has the goal of trying to find the best possible um, state of living for everybody who lives here or in that community in, in general, if it's a smaller community, like you were talking about, like different stages, you know, and you said something about like, you know, well, how can we only have one system, et cetera, et cetera. That won't happen until everybody voluntarily decides to do that. And we are quite confident that eventually time will bring that about. And if it doesn't, mankind is doomed. You don't have to worry about us killing you. We will die. All right, so here, here's my, my response to that. Obviously, uh, I, I do not carry the same uh, uh, hatred for poor people as whoever you were talking to. <laughs> so I don't, I, I don't, yeah, obviously, you're right. Uh, I, am, I, I do have a, a soft heart, a very soft heart, and I really do like to look out for other people. I'm very giving. And uh, on, that, on that note, I do think that people need to take more responsibility for their lives. I think that there's more that people can do, and I think obviously a lack of education has had to do this. I guess my problem is, I do we we do obviously we don't like the violence of the state, right? I mean, obviously neither of us do. And so when I look at his history, and almost every single central planned ideal that has come out on a massive scale has been imposed through violence, right? Everything I have ever seen on a massive scale involves violence. I mean, uh, even, even the U.S., which is supposed to be a free country, we look back at the Founding Fathers, they had slavery and all this stuff. I mean, it's all backed around by violence, right? Taxes, uh, eminent domain. Uh, to me, it's it, it, the war on drugs. All this stuff is just violence, right? And so when I, when I, when I look at this, I think if we could get rid of, of this violence, which I see the biggest threat as being centralization of power and, and resources into one in, entity, I, I see that as one of the things that makes it so that you have your your poor regions such as Nigeria and Botswana and, and other regions that are just you know tor, war torn. And and when I when I when I when I see the valuation system in the marketplace, and then I, I, I look at what we've had through any central plan system I've ever seen, it always it's always promises and it just it just crumbles and usually it's taken over by an oligarchy, right? So this is one of the bigger threats that you're, you're going to face, the RBE crowd's going to face going forward, is people who are just very weary of, of, of trusting any, anybody else in the world. And, and you can say it's all because of consumerism, 
But in some cases, people would rather really, like my example earlier, is just do things. And this is, I think, a natural part of humanity is to, to better your life and do what you want uh, as long as you're not hurting anybody else. Now, you, you might, you know, like the RBE might see them that way, but to me, they don't, right? But I think one of the things, going back to my original point, was if we all had more individual responsibility, we, we would be able to feed all these, these people. And um, there, there wouldn't be as much poverty as, as there is today. So I think that's one fear that most people say. Now, in, in, in one of my last questions for you is, what is the next step for RBE? So what, what are you guys going to do to create um, RBE Society next? Well, first, let me respond a little bit to your yeah, point yeah. about central planned economies. Um, one of the things I pointed out in the last broadcast that we have is that there's actually an entirely different approach to that called decentralized models. Even within socialist or communist ideals, there's decentralized models. And that the majority of the, I think, you know, because what I would say to you is that in exchange, um, most of the anarcho-syndicalists, and there was successful anarcho-syndicalism in Spain, I might add at one point, and I'll give you the link if you want to look at it, but um, anarcho-syndicalists uh, as well as uh, you know, anarcho-communists and some of the other anarchist schools who also don't like the state have also noticed an immense amount of violence committed in the pursuit of you know, the control of resources for capitalist gain. Um, and they've utilized the state to that purpose in the same way that you're suggesting that the state violence created in the, the Soviet examples of central planning, for example, um, are also, we come back to the state and corruption and a, a central few doing things that they're not supposed to be doing, even within the model that they're given. Um, and so, you know, I would point out that uh, the, for example, the expansionism into the Native American territories that Ayn Rand justified in the name of capitalism, you know, um, is an example of violence being carried out by people who want to acquire resources and wealth. Um, and I think that uh, we, I agree with you about the issue of violence, and I agree with you about the issue of the state. I don't think that uh, a society that is essentially pitting itself against itself. Uh, to to compete over things that people requ require to survive is going to be able to hold to the non-aggression principle. And I'm concerned that, and there are other anarchist schools, I might add, that have this same concern about anarcho-capitalism, is that it will lead back to a state apparatus as people try to protect their property. Um, the basically, I think that the violence paradigm, it's not enough just to say that the state is the problem. You also have to look at the, the other aspects of things that tend to lead mankind into violence. Um, and one of the major points all the way back to before there even was a state was people competing over resources because they didn't have any choice. Is if they didn't have those resources, they would die. I think that that's, you're going to find that's a source of violence way more often in the history of mankind overall, which does not mean the state is benevolent or that the state is good. I, it's not a question of saying that the state is the alternative or that that's the way to do it. I think that they're both bad. I, I don't settle with just one. I, I think that would be where we differ, um, is to say that I'm not satisfied with just eliminating the state. I think we need to eliminate all power structures that create hierarchies, that you know, essentially cause people to seek advantage over one another because dominance is a state of safety. You, know, you see it, you know, for example, 
uh, in areas where there is no state and people, you know, gather warlords to themselves and, you know, uh, essentially just kind of forever fighting over the monopoly on force amongst themselves. Um, so that being said, as far as next steps are concerned, the first aspect of, at least depending on who you ask, obviously within the zeitgeist movement is about bringing people to the ideals in question having more people have the same kind of transformations that I and many other people have had about thinking about their consumer behavior and how it's damaging not only themselves but the planet that they live on, um, bringing people to an awareness of the value of the scientific method for solving social problems. That's what the awareness spreading is about because it's not just about building cities that do these things. It's about people recognizing the value of why those cities are important in the first place. When you move on past that, a lot of the work is kind of already being done. It doesn't, people get into like, what have you built or whatever, as if there aren't already resource-based, economy-based, um, off-the-grid model living communities already. And there are. There are people already producing their own energy, their own food, you know, and essentially functioning outside of the market. And that's, uh, those kinds of microcosmic examples could be built upon. Um, I know the Venus Project has talked about wanting to make a city at some point, but it's difficult to achieve that in our current paradigm until enough people recognize the value and, the, and the, essentially the need for it. Um, so uh, those are the steps that you see being taken at this point um, as far as to where we're going. Um, is education and kind of bringing people to, in, you know, Peter, for example, a lot of his work, you know, even Victor Pross suggested that, you know, his uh, bringing about the knowledge of awareness of the problems is a first step. Then we need to talk about the solutions to those problems, you know, getting people thinking, you know, and at the end of the day, Michael, if through a resource-based economy model, we somehow scientifically found that uh, letting people willy-nilly expend resources and trade them back and forth like Pokemon cards is the best way for mankind to survive. I don't think that's what science would say, but if it did, that's what we would do. Um, if it didn't, and I'm pretty confident that it won't, then we wouldn't. Alright. Uh, I got gotcha. you. Alright. Good stuff, good stuff. Um... I think we addressed everything that I had a question about um, in, over the last two shows, at least. Um, structural violence, obviously, uh, we, that was kind of inherent in almost every part of your conversation, I think. So, you know what I'm saying, the underlying concept. So I think we, we really hit on everything. Um, I, I do think you're going to have some, uh, some problems navigating around resources. I, I, uh, that would be just my two results. I, I do want to say uh, that I am happy to hear that it's voluntary. I am concerned with people who might want to opt out down the road. They just don't like whatever it is. Even if you can consider them crazy and unscientific, uh, the people might have that preference, especially when you have a trillion people down the road. And so that, that is one concern for me. Um, that pretty much the economic calculation problem and the opt-out issue down the road, if there is a full zeitgeist world, those are probably my two biggest concerns uh, outside of not being able to control the resources around you probably as efficiently as you would through private property. So that's my, my summary of the RBE from the last uh, four hours that you have graciously uh, contributed and donated to me and well, my education. So I, I, I thank you so much for your time. 
Well, I appreciate that, Michael, and I think this has been a very good conversation. Um, and I look forward to having more about this. And if you have questions in the future, and if you want to have discussions or roundtables, that's fine with me. Because as I said before, my main goal was that I needed to get word out there to people who are going to listen, and more people are going to listen, obviously, from your group's point of view. Um, if it happens to be on a show that you're involved in, than me just talking about it myself, to get over some of the more basic answers. I think you recognize, for example, that you know, Zeitgeist isn't coming to your door and taking your private property and forcing you to um, give anything up. We have established that, right? Right. <laughs> okay. You know that we're not baby eaters and you know, uh, <laughs> sun worshippers. No, and, no labels know. for me. No labels for me on that. No, on that's that. totally Don't fine, and I, and I get that, and I hope that people listen to this get that idea. Um, and so, uh, so as I said, you know, and I've told people this before, and unfortunately we only have like a minute left, and I'll talk to you a little bit off the air. Um, thank you very much for being on my show, and thank you for clearly articulating your points to the best of your ability, and, and that we can have an open, good, strong dialogue where we can exchange ideas, even if we don't agree about those ideas. Absolutely, and I look forward to next week. Absolutely. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. If this is your first time listening to V Radio, please check out my website, v or v-radio.org. There you can listen to the archives of our shows like this one, interviews with scientists, documentary filmmakers, politicians, the few good ones, activists, uh, all kinds of great stuff in the archives section, and my must-see TV list of free documentaries you can watch on the Internet uh, that I think all activists of any group, anarcho-capitalist, zeitgeist, whatever, should take part in. Thanks again.